Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce to your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much today, and I would, too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Acute Myeloid Leukemia, or AML, Treatment Updates. And today's program we are doing in partnership with the Leukemia Research Foundation, and it's really a great pleasure for us to be partnering with them. And you'll be hearing from um, later on more about the resources for all of you um, on this program as well. Um, now today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant uh, from Genentech and I really want to thank them for their support not only of this program but many of our programs. Um, I also want to acknowledge that we have over 175 participants on the call today and you come from all over the United States from both urban, rural, suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants, actually from a number of countries, from um, Austria, Cameroon, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, Malaysia, Poland, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call to some extent. And uh, our speakers are US-based, and they'll be presenting information to you from a, the US perspective in terms of their, their so the words they'll be using are US-based. Um, and um, before I introduce our first speaker, um, I would like to just ask you just a few questions. It'll take probably about two minutes to ask you the questions. For those of you who are live streaming the program, so those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate the answers to the questions. So I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current treatment and new and emerging therapies for acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand transplantation as a treatment option for acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand quality of life concerns and follow-up care for acute myeloid leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions to go. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort of acute myeloid leukemia or AML in the context of COVID-19 and Syrians. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, I understand the role of clinical trials for acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. Um, it will help us as we plan many programs in 2022 to better tailor our programs to meet your needs. So I really want to thank, the, thank you, each of you, 
for participating in, in, the, uh, in the questions. Um, and now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Fahad Ravandi. And Dr. Ravandi is Jadis and Stephen A. Flasher, Professor of Medicine, Chief Section of Department Therapeutics, Department of Leukemia, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ravandi will be addressing an overview of acute myeloid leukemia, including current treatment options in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, transplantation as a treatment option for AML, new and emerging therapies, quality of life concerns and follow-up care, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ravandi. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation. And uh, as mentioned, I'm going to talk about an overview of the disease. And as the name implies, uh, acute myeloid leukemia is a generally more aggressive form of leukemia that um, uh, results in uh, problems with the bone marrow function. Uh, and as you all know, the bone marrow is necessary for production of the uh, cells in the blood, uh, which are, are necessary for the number of factors uh, such as uh, fighting infections, controlling bleeding, and uh, uh, not being uh, anemic, so uh, not fatigued. And uh, this is called acute myeloid leukemia, uh, but the aggressiveness can vary. Uh, there are some patients that uh, arrive with extremely high uh, blood counts, uh, essentially their blood uh, being uh, made uh, almost completely of leukemic cells. Uh, and these are obviously a complete emergency and need uh, uh, aggressive management. Uh, other patients can have a more protracted course, although I would not say any patient with acute myeloid leukemia uh, should uh, uh, be uh, not uh, counseled and initiated on therapy uh, at least within about a week uh, of uh, uh, suspecting the diagnosis. Uh, there are various subsets of the disease, and uh, over the last uh, particularly 20 years, uh, we have understood uh, the mechanisms that result in these cells becoming leukemic, and this is really related to the uh, genes and chromosomes of the leukemic cells. Uh, and uh, these uh, uh, mechanisms have been uh, able to be better delineated uh, because we have better assays over the last uh, couple of decades that can identify these uh, abnormalities. And I think that has been extremely important uh, because uh, this has actually translated uh, to a large number of new FDA-approved drugs, uh, about 10 of them over the last several years, which have really uh, revolutionized the treatment of this disease. Um, we uh, used to treat all the patients uh, with this disease solely with the use of chemotherapy. Uh, and of course, uh, this was uh, much more problematic in older patients uh, who could not tolerate the toxicities of chemotherapy but uh, with the introduction of what we call targeted therapy over the last several uh, years, um, 
treatment is changing and uh, uh, particularly for the older patients uh, is becoming uh, much more uh, uh, plausible and uh, less toxic. And uh, so, of course, this has led to also uh, better outcomes for uh, patients in general and in some subsets, particularly the outcomes are outstanding. Um, uh, for example, a subset of uh, AML called APL, which used to be uh, highly fatal, uh, uh, is now almost 100% uh, curable. Um, and that's not with the use of chemotherapy. Uh, this uh, brings me to the topic of uh, COVID-19 and um, how that affects therapy. And um, unfortunately, AML is a disease that uh, cannot be uh, uh, watched for a while. There are other types of, types of leukemia, uh, the more indolent and slow-growing leukemias that uh, we could uh, defer therapy for a while uh, and uh, not uh, initiate uh, 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 the effective therapy that's needed. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case for AML. And uh, uh, despite uh, the concerns about COVID-19, uh, patients with AML still need to be uh, initiated on therapy. And uh, of course, uh, even in the past when there was no COVID, um, treatment of AML was uh, fraught with risks uh, because the treatment uh, essentially causes significant uh, suppression of the immune system, uh, and uh, this can predispose patients to infections. And e e again, even prior to COVID, uh, we uh, and others treat uh, AML patients extremely cautiously. Uh, at our institution, for example, all the patients have always being treated initially in what uh, we call the protected environment uh, to ensure the risks of infections are minimized. Unfortunately, this is never going to be completely uh, uh, eliminated uh, because a lot of the infections are from within, uh, from our own uh, bowel, and et cetera. Uh, but uh, again, the treatment of ARNL uh, it does carry with it significant risk of infection, and uh, the precautions that are necessary for that uh, are uh, well known to uh, AML patients and uh, their relatives. Uh, we tell patients and relatives not to be in contact uh, with anyone who has uh, significant, for example, respiratory symptoms. Uh, so in the context of COVID, uh, of course, this has become even more acute because all of us have been concerned about uh, contracting COVID. Uh, I uh, still uh, highly recommend all people, everyone, to be fully vaccinated for COVID-19. Um, uh, of course, once you develop AML uh, and you haven't been vaccinated, this becomes even more difficult because, as a, because of the immunosuppression associated with the disease and its therapy the efficacy of the vaccines are probably not as, uh, as good. Uh, but uh, if uh, one is vac fully vaccinated um, uh, prior to initiation of uh, AML or prior to diagnosis of AML, uh, I would expect that uh, 
there's still risks, but uh, probably to some degree uh, lower risks. Um, moving on to uh, transplantation, uh, it is very important uh, at diagnosis these days for us uh, to uh, evaluate the bone marrow or predictors of uh, outcome. And this uh, has been uh, developed over uh, a couple of, uh, actually uh, three or four decades uh, using large series of patients that uh, have looked at to see what are the predictors for any patient to be too well uh, uh, with therapy. And this is particularly uh, in the case of uh, the chromosome and gene abnormalities that I mentioned earlier that we know are the cause of uh, uh, development of AML. And this can be assessed using the bone marrow specimen at diagnosis. So it's absolutely crucial uh, these days for uh, anyone uh, with this diagnosis have their initial bone marrow exam evaluated for uh, chromosome and gene abnormalities. And as I mentioned earlier, this is important because of there are actually a number of new and uh, effective agents that are available that can be uh, added or uh, uh, can modify the treatment of the patient with AML. But also based on those genes and chromosome abnormalities, we also decide about uh, uh, the need for an allogeneic stem cell transplant in first remission. I would say that the vast majority of patients still do uh, need an allogeneic transplant. Unfortunately, uh, uh, this is not always the case because uh, other factors come into it. For example, age uh, of the patient and presence or absence of significant other medical problems. Uh, and pre most importantly, presence or absence of a suitable donor for transplant. Uh, but uh, there is a subset of AML patients uh, we probably wrongly call favorable. Uh, it should probably call, be called more favorable rather than favorable. Uh, and those patients, we don't recommend an allogeneic stem cell transplant, but unfortunately, there are only a smaller uh, proportion of patients. Uh, but uh, in the patients who are candidates for transplants, uh, we do refer them uh, almost immediately at diagnosis to be evaluated for a potential transplant uh, because the process of organizing transplant can take time. Uh, so uh, we need to be ahead of the process. Uh, moving on to new uh, and emerging therapies, as I mentioned, we have had a number of drug approvals over the last 10 years, many of them are specific targeted agents. Uh, there are approvals in various uh, state, uh, uh, states of AML. So for example, there are even now drug approvals for patients to receive for maintenance therapy of AML. But uh, also uh, agents that are combined with chemotherapy or combined uh, with uh, uh, lower intensity chemotherapy uh, drugs. And these uh, have really uh, changed the uh, picture for um, particularly older AML patients that uh, used to, in general, do not so well uh, in terms of initial tolerance of therapy and also long-term outcome. Uh, but uh, with these lower intensity uh, strategies, uh, they are still uh, effective and some I would actually call probably more effective 
than chemotherapy in some ways because of the lower risk of toxicity initially. Uh, another area of development that is of a lot of interest to me particularly is development of oral agents. A lot of these uh, new uh, and emerging therapies are pills. And uh, I actually see a future not so far ahead of us that we can actually treat a lot of our uh, particularly older ML patients uh, just with combinations of pills. Uh, so this is, again, just showing you that there is a lot of progress and advance in the treatment of AML in the last uh, um, two, two decades, particularly. Uh, of course, the, 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 I brought that point up because the, the next topic that I have to uh, uh, handle is quality of life. And of course, uh, you know, as you would all uh, imagine, uh, if you do have a, a oral regimen, uh, that can improve the quality of life of patients. Uh, with these lower intensity regimens that have been around uh, uh, now for uh, four or five years, the quality of life has significantly improved, uh, at least what, that's what my patients tell me. Um, and, uh, uh, and this is essentially related to a lower risk of toxicity that is associated with this uh, lower intensity regimens. Now, in younger patients, we still haven't made the leap uh, towards the lower intensity uh, regimens uh, because uh, we need to make sure that uh, these lower intensity regimens can be uh, highly curative. Uh, and uh, hopefully the next few years uh, and the next uh, several years will show us if uh, there are at least some subsets that we can make that leap. Um, in terms of uh, follow-up, every uh, patient uh, initially needs very close follow-up in the first uh, uh, few months of therapy, even if they are in complete remission. Uh, as time goes by, uh, the frequency of follow-up care gets less. Um, there is, uh, there have always been a uh, suggestion that if the patient is in remission for at least about three years, the risk of relapse continues to get lower and lower, but unfortunately, uh, patients can relapse uh, several years after achieving remission. So uh, uh, my, our AML patients tend to follow up with us for a long time. Um, of course, some of them uh, even come uh, many years later. But uh, uh, I think this follow-up in AML, at least initially, has to be in person, in my opinion. Uh, there is a role for telehealth for patients who have been in remission long time, uh, but uh, at least in uh, my practice, telehealth and telemedicine uh, is reserved uh, for patients who have been doing very well for a long time, and they just want some assurance that everything is uh, doing uh, fine. And even in those situations, the patients do have their blood checked locally, and then uh, we discuss their uh, lab findings. I think that is my last topic, and I, hopefully I didn't overstep my time. Oh, you certainly did not, and you were superb, Dr. Dr. Avani. This was an excellent, excellent presentation and, and really outstanding um, and really set the stage for today's program with a lot of uh, wonderful information and a lot of very optimistic information for people on the call today to hear all of the new things available for them. And um, so thank you so much. And I know there will be um, questions later on as well. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Eitan uh, Stein, and Dr. Stein 
is a hematologist, hematologic oncologist, clinical trialist, acute myeloid leukemia, leukemia service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Stein will be addressing the role of clinical trials in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, how clinical trials increase treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, important questions to ask when communicating with your healthcare team, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stein. So thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here and to chat with you all for a few minutes. Um, so I wanted to open by discussing what a clinical trial is and why we do clinical trials. So when we talk about clinical trials, I think what we're talking about most often in the context of acute myeloid leukemia is what's called a therapeutic clinical trial. And that's a clinical trial that's trying to establish um, one of a few things, depending on which kind of clinical trial you're enrolling on. A clinical trial can be looking at a new medication that is not FDA approved for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia, but for which there's a lot of promise in the laboratory and seeing how well it works when we move it from the laboratory uh, into uh, actual uh, AML patients. That's usually called a phase one clinical trial. There are clinical trials that try to add new drugs onto a backbone of standard of care. So an example of this would be, um, many of you know that we give intensive induction chemotherapy to many of our younger patients with acute myeloid leukemia. And there was a clinical trial that added on an inhibitor of a mutant protein called FLT3 um, onto that backbone. And that clinical trial with a drug called mitostorin was found to be better than giving the seven plus three alone. So there are clinical trials that are also trying to explore whether the addition of a new agent is better than the standard of care. The reason I really uh, think clinical trials are important is twofold. So the first reason is that it offers the patient a chance to have access to a very, very exciting drug that is not yet FDA approved and offers the possibility that it will be better than whatever the current standard of care is. In addition, um, when a patient enrolls on a clinical trial, um, they're also sort of benefiting humanity in the field of leukemia research in general. So, you know, unless we had people that uh, agreed to enroll on clinical trials, we wouldn't have made any of the progress that Dr. Ravandi was talking about because we wouldn't have had the ability to see that certain treatments might be better than some of the older treatments. One of the challenges with COVID-19 had been that for many, many uh, academic medical centers around the country, when COVID-19 first started, we were given a directive to get as many patients with cancers out of the hospital as possible to make room for patients who had COVID-19. And in that um, effort to make room for the patients who had COVID-19, and make bed space available for patients who had COVID-19, many academic medical centers really shut down accrual to their clinical trials, which I think unfortunately really set us back um, by six to 12 months. What I think has been a dramatic um, change, even though COVID-19 persists, has been that now that we think COVID-19 is becoming a manageable disease with vaccinations and with 
um, treatments such as monoclonal antibodies and antivirals, all of our clinical trials are now up and running again. And those clinical trials are now able to be done to some extent from a distance. So what do I mean by that? So it used to be that if I enrolled a patient on a clinical trial, um, they would need to come to uh, the Upper East Side of Manhattan in New York City um, every time the clinical trial told them they needed to come to the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And that could be once a week, it could be twice a week, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, Memorial Sloan Kettering and many other uh, academic medical centers or hospitals in general have satellite sites that may be closer to the patient's home. And with the use of, with the use of telemedicine, a doctor or uh, an advanced practice provider can see the patient who's on the clinical trial at the satellite location, while the person who's sort of running the whole thing, like me, can visit, visit with the patient um, by video. And I think that that, to some extent, increases the, the reach of the clinical trials that we have. Um, you know, whenever you're getting any treatment for acute myeloid leukemia, whether it's on a clinical trial or not on a clinical trial, um, and just by dint of having acute myeloid leukemia, people will experience side effects. Um, the side effects of the treatments that we give for acute myeloid leukemia generally relate to the lowering of blood counts, and the disease itself causes lowering of the blood counts. So when you have acute myeloid leukemia or when you're on certain treatments for acute myeloid leukemia, patients will often become anemic or have low platelet counts or be susceptible to infections. You know, the symptoms that people develop tend to be a direct result of those three things, anemia, low platelet counts, and a low immune system, which can lead to infection. Um, some of the things that are very important to help prevent those side effects is number one, really meticulous uh, mouth care. So some of the infections that people develop come from bacteria that are living in the mouth that um, might sneak into the body through sores that can develop in the mouth. So, you know, just being sure that you, we, we often tell people to, to rinse with sodium bicarbonate, um, good oral hygiene, that's something that can really help prevent um, the mouth sores that people develop and sometimes can help prevent infectious complications that people can also develop. It's important that patients get their blood work checked um, as frequently as their doctor thinks they need to get their blood work checked. So, you know, if you're very anemic, you're not gonna feel well. And if you're not getting your blood work checked frequently enough, you won't have an idea that you're becoming very anemic. So staying on top of um, getting blood work checked, getting transfusions if needed, that will also greatly assist in um, really minimizing the side effects of acute myeloid leukemia and its treatment. Now, I think the last thing I really want to cover is how you communicate with your healthcare team and how do you communicate in an era where people are doing these telemedicine visits. So let's talk about the tech issues first. It's really important that whatever technical system you're going to use for your telemedicine visit is working before you try to get on the visit with your doctor. Many hospitals that are using telemedicine have the ability to sort of check with a tech person to be sure the system they're working, they're using is working before the doctor's appointment. You know, the reason it's important is because I can tell you that as a doctor who treats a lot of patients with AML, you know, uh, our, our clinics are very busy and um, 
if when you get on a call with someone or a telemedicine visit, you know, the computer's not working or this isn't working or that isn't working, um, it can sort of shorten the amount of time you have to spend with the patient. Um, often the technical issues end up being on the hospital side and not on, not on the patient side. But um, if you're offered the opportunity to um, figure out those tech issues before you get on the call, I would, I would strongly advise you uh, to take that opportunity. When you're communicating with your healthcare team or at least seeing someone for the first time um, who's introducing you to various treatment options for acute myeloid leukemia, you know, I always ask the following questions, or I tell my patients at least to ask the following questions. The first is, can you tell me what are the major side effects of this treatment that you're um, recommending for me? How do you expect the treatment that you're recommending for me will benefit me? Um, communicating to your provider sort of what's important to you in terms of treatments. Is it important to you um, that you want to be free of transfusions? Is it important to you that um, you don't want significant side effects from a treatment? Because as Dr. Ravandi said, we've entered a period where there are new treatments for acute myeloid leukemia. Um, and those treatments can be tailored to some extent to what a patient's priorities might be. I mean, not always. Sometimes we only might have one treatment for one particular kind of AML, but in some cases there may be multiple treatments, and, and having that discussion with your provider I think is very, very important. You know, the other thing that is, um, that is particularly important is finding out who are the members of the care team besides the doctor. You know, when you call in because you have a symptom, it's often not the doctor who's getting on the phone with you. Often there's a, um, an administrative person who will answer the phone. They may pay, pass um, your message over to a nurse who will discuss what's going on with the doctor, but then the nurse or the advanced practice provider will call you back. You know, I think to, to have a sense of who you're dealing with, it's really important to say to the doctor, hey, who else am I gonna be talking to um, when I call in if I have a problem. And if it is your nurse, would you mind if I met your nurse or if I met the people who are going to be helping me out? Because it's a, it's a real team approach in acute myeloid leukemia. No one person can do it all themselves. Uh, and the final thing I tell patients to ask is, and, and my patients do ask me this, I'll say, they'll say, or I'll tell them to say, if I was your father or brother or sister or child, what would you recommend um, I do? That is, you want your physician and your care team to treat you like family. I try, I think all of us, but many of us try to treat our patients like family. Um, and really understanding what you, what your doctor would do if they were family, I think can give a level of reassurance that um, they really care about the symptoms that you might be having and uh, what might be going on. Um, I think that's where I'm gonna end and I'd be happy to take any questions at the end of the call. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stein. That was really outstanding and really incredibly informative and also um, a lot of excellent details for our participants to be aware of and particularly around the technology of these um, to tell us that they really work well and all the other things are important as well. So thanks. thank you so much. Thanks. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, our next speaker 
um, is Ms. Carrie Callis, and Ms. Callis is Director of Programs Leukemia Research Foundation, and they are a partner organization on today's program and a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. Um, and uh, Ms. Callis will be addressing Leukemia Research Foundation's few programs and services. And um, I'm, it's my really great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Callis. Thank you, Carolyn, so much for that introduction, and thank you to Cancer Care for including the foundation as a partner in this really important program about AML. Um, I will very briefly just give an a overview of the foundation and, as Carolyn mentioned, our free patient and family support programs that may benefit um, everyone on this call. Um, the foundation's mission really has two parts. The first one, as it says in our name, is to fund research to um, try to find new treatments and cures of all blood cancers. Um, since we began, the foundation has raised over $80 million in support of its mission and has funded research grants to over 600 new investigators worldwide to help them advance their research. Um, and with regard to AML specifically, over the past two years, about a third of the foundation's research funds have supported AML research projects. Um, in addition to our research investments, um, the second part of our mission is to support patients and families by providing, um, the first thing we do is educational programs, much like the one that you're on now, um, with top hematology oncology experts, um, we host two signature conferences a year. The first one is our annual New and Emerging Treatments Conference in the fall. And we also host a town hall meeting, which is an open forum for patients to ask questions of experts. And actually, Dr. Stein, who's on the, who just presented, was a panelist this past February in our most recent program. Um, both programs, as well as a variety of other virtual programs on a variety of topics, um, include information specifically on AML as well. Um, additionally, in addition to the education programs, we offer peer support programs, um, including a leukemia online support community and also a one-on-one -on -one mentoring program for patients and caregivers through a partnership with Immerman Angels. Um, ongoing treatments and disease management, everyone on this call knows, can take a toll on a family financially. Um, to that end, we offer a need-based patient grant program available to eligible patients um, in Illinois who are fighting a blood cancer. Um, I also wanted to just give you a quick update that we recently, very recently, added new disease content and informational resources on blood cancers. Um, on our website, as well as content about being newly diagnosed, as well as several treatment-related topics as well. Um, so to learn more about the foundation and to register for any of our programs, um, you can visit our website. Um, for those of you following online, you can see it there, allbloodcancerswithans.org. Um, on our website, you can sign up for our email list so that you can be informed of upcoming programs and research advances, other relevant topics. We're always working to include um, topics most of interest to patients and caregivers in those communications. Um, so thank you very much for the opportunity to share about the foundation, and I will now turn it back over to Carolyn from Cancer Care. Uh, 
Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Callis. That was really outstanding and really a wonderful resource to everybody on the call today. Please, if you haven't taken advantage of this organization, please do. Um, it's it's a great resource to all of you. And actually, um, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation probably on Monday about the program, and it'll be an evaluation of the program. But also, um, it'll also include any of the resources we mentioned during the program. So you'll be getting all the links um, and, and uh, telephone number for uh, Leukemia Research Foundation, Cancer Care, any other organizations that we decide to include as well so that you have, in addition to evaluation, you're going to have some additional places to get, seek out some help too as well, and include, in addition to your healthcare team. So I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. Um, so please uh, get ready for the Q&A. We're going to have questions very soon. Um, but I, um, I wanted to say a few words about uh, cancer care is a national organization um, and it's a nonprofit organization, which means that all of our services are free, so there are no costs for them. And they're provided by about over 40 master's level oncology social workers. And so what do they do and what kind of services can you get from us? So um, first of all, one can call our HOPE line. Um, it's an 800 number, so that works for people within the United States and parts of uh, Canada. Um, and you can call us, and, um, and the social workers will answer the phone. So when you call, the person picking up the phone is an oncology social worker. And usually people have a specific question or, or why they're calling, and then we address that and then provide them with all the other services we offer. So what are all those other services? So we do provide um, practical and financial and co-payment assistance. And in this era, in terms of people feeling particularly stretched with finances and concerns about that, um, we do help with um, a number of things like transportation for treatment or home care. Our Copay Foundation helps to pay for some of your, um, you know, some of your treatments. Um, and um, and if we don't have the, if we're not the place that has those particular things that you need, let's say you have issues around food insecurity or you have issues around paying your mortgage or rent, um, we have a case management unit staff, and they will then work with you virtually, take you to either a local resource, um, regional or national resource, that can help you with your concern or question. So that's an enormous help to people. Um, and, and they will stay with you until the problem is, practic is solved, actually, until you have a resource, the resource that you need. Um, you know, to actually to get that need met. We also offer online support groups, um, and those are on many different topics, including um, uh, leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia. Um, and we also have them for caregivers, for young adults, for older adults, um, for, um, uh, for um, partners. Um, and so we, and on, for caregivers, so we have quite a few, um, both cancer-specific uh, online support groups, and we also have online support groups on just a variety of, of really um, other population issues that affect each of you on the call today in terms of um, being a caregiver or being a partner or being, um, you know, uh, caring for somebody who's older or younger, all those issues, or being an older adult with a particular type of cancer or leukemia. So, um, so that's another resource. And the nice thing about the online support groups is that they don't occur in real time like this one does. They occur in, um, so they, they, you can post any time of the day or night, and our oncology social workers will, will check the posts on a daily basis 
and would be moderating your, those workshops. All services are provided by uh, MSW Oncology Social Workers. Now, in addition to that, we offer these education workshops. We also have publications. And we also um, offer coping circles, which are a chance. They're smaller groups where people can discuss issues of concern um, to them uh, on a variety of topics, so that's been, and wellness topics as well. Um, so those are a host of some of our services. You can access them from our website. Um, and also for those of you who are international, you can also access, you can post a question on our website. Our oncology social workers will then address the question with you. You won't be left to figure this out by yourself. We will figure out a resource for you um, that can assist you with your concern or question. Okay. Now, um, before we move on to um, our Q&A, I just have a few questions to ask all of you um, before we do that. So if you just bear with us, we have just a few questions. For those of you who are, again, live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate the questions. Um, so I'm going to start with the first question. As, we, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current treatment and new and emerging treat therapies for acute myeloid leukemia. And what is the highest um, rating and five is the lowest rating. And the next, uh, next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of transplantation as a treatment option for acute myeloid leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of quality of life concerns and follow-up care for acute myeloid leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to use their tips and suggestions, recommendations to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort in acute myeloid leukemia in the context of COVID-19 and experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for acute myeloid leukemia. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. Um, your participation will help us as we plan programs in 2022 and will help us to tailor the programs to best meet your needs. And now I'm going to ask Sadai to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, today, if you could explain to people how to queue up the questions, and um, so let the questions begin. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If you require or remove yourself from the queue, press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit the questions by clicking ask a question. So we have a question for Dr. Bravandi. How effective are these new agents with the more elderly? My dad is 75 years old and was diagnosed with AML, but otherwise is healthy, only diabetes. He is about to undergo seven plus three methods. 
if you could comment on that question in a general way. Um, so how old was the patient again? Uh, uh, 75 years old and diagnosed with AML. Otherwise healthy yeah. except for diabetes. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, uh, there are differences of opinion among experts about this. Uh, some of this actually may depend on, again, I'm going back to the genes and mutations uh, that I discussed earlier. Uh, there are uh, some subtypes uh, of AML that are actually more responsive to probably any form of uh, therapy uh, but have been shown to be uh, very well treated with uh, these lower uh, intensity regimens. Um, so uh, in a, I think the patient is 75 uh, and uh, is otherwise healthy. So he's really a, a borderline uh, for um, at least the FDA approval of these lower intensity regimens. Uh, the approval was for patients over 75 or if they're younger than uh, 75 who have comorbidities that don't, doesn't allow them to get chemotherapy. Now, some of us believe that uh, even the uh, patients younger than 75 who are fit, uh, at least in some subsets of uh, AML, would probably benefit from uh, the lower intensity newer regimens, uh, if not as much as the seven plus three. Uh, sorry, if not uh, the same as seven plus three, but even might be even better because of potential lower risk of toxicity. So I think that's a debate that is ongoing, and there is a lot of uh, debates is going on about this. There's new literature coming out. And there are uh, trials that are at least uh, being designed and at least one or two trials that are already ongoing that is looking at that exact question that if you are 75 or younger and fit, should you receive the lower intensity or should you receive the three plus seven? Uh, so um, I think the good thing is your patient is fit and healthy. Otherwise, from what you tell me, and they should do reasonably well, at least with the three plus seven as well. Uh, if they were at my center, they would probably get the lower intensity regimen. Excellent. Thank you, Thank you so much, and I hope that's been helpful to our, our participants. Good, good, a good question. Great answer for us. Um, and our next question um, for um, for Dr. Um, Stein: a Chromosome rearrangements can be determined from a genome. So why doesn't every patient have a complete genome done? The cost is falling all the time. Could you address this in a general way? Or? Um, I guess the question is around why don't we whole genome sequence in um, every patient? Um, I think the answer to that is that the genetic alterations that we find in patients with acute myeloid leukemia tend to um, fall into various categories that are relatively fixed. That is, there are a series of genetic mutations and chromosomal alterations that are commonly seen in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. So you don't really need to sequence someone's entire genome to find those. You just, you only need to look for those specific mutations to see if they are present 
um, or absent. And I think that is the really the standard of care now for patients with newly diagnosed and relapsed and refractory AML is to look for those specific uh, chromosomal rearrangements that we commonly see and the genetic alterations we commonly see. You know, many centers, or at least academic medical centers, now do um, more extensive genetic testing. Um, but I can tell you from my clinical practice, the number of times in that more extensive genetic testing that we find something that's going to change the patient's treatment that is different than what we would have found with the somewhat more limited genetic testing is pretty small. Um, so I think that's the answer. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope that's helpful. Uh, for our, I, uh, uh, oh, yes, Dr. I totally agree with Dr. Stein. I just wanted to add a comment that is also extremely expensive. Uh, so uh, I, I, as the questioner asked, if the costs continue to come down, it's not impossible that we will do that you know, uh, in the future. There are occasional occasions that has been shown in one study that such a practice may identify uh, changes that may help us decide a specific therapy, but that's again at the moment very uncommon, and also the, again the cost is very high. Excellent. To do Thank it in you so a much. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. It's wonderful to have um, both of you on the call because it just really for the participants it's just a wonderful <coughs> wonderful opportunity to to get such incredible information. Um, and a question for Dr. Ravandi, is CAR-T approved for AML? And if you could say a bit about CAR-T and whether it is appropriate for AML patients. Okay, that's a very uh, uh, topical question because, you know, we've all seen uh, how CAR-T is effective in uh, many patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and uh, particularly with uh, lymphoma. And there has been a desire to have uh, uh, CAR-T and perhaps other forms of what we call immunotherapy in AML as well. Uh, so as probably many of the audience are aware, immunotherapy in cancer is uh, very prominent. Um, uh, we've had a Nobel Prize uh, a winner uh, describing some mechanisms by which immunotherapy can be used in cancer therapy. Um, we have... Uh, done a number of studies trying to look at various forms of immune therapy in AML. Uh, some of our uh, older colleagues would tell us that uh, we have done immunotherapy in AML uh, for uh, close to 50 years, and that's allogeneic bone marrow transplant. That's a form of immunotherapy. Uh, so far, uh, the studies for CAR T cell in AML have been uh, limited in number, uh, and uh, the reports have been very uh, um, restricted to just a few patients. Uh, so it's uh, not yet uh, a strategy that's available for patients, and I wouldn't even say that the strategy that we know is, we know is highly effective in uh, patients, and that is why we still need to do clinical trials of this uh, uh, strategy. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, um, next question for Dr. Stein. What are some um, treatments that may help relieve the symptoms of AML? So, I mean, the, the symptoms of AML, as I mentioned in, in the earlier comments, primarily, primarily are related to um, the symptoms people get from anemia and from uh, low platelet counts and having a low immune system. So it's a little difficult to talk about symptoms of AML generally because I'm not sure there's any one symptom. I mean, as I mentioned before, it's important to have your blood work checked when your doctor tells you to have your blood work checked so that if you need a transfusion, you can get a transfusion because that will often make people um, feel better. Um, certainly, if your doctor wants you to take prophylactic antibiotics to help prevent an infection, that's something that can help avoid the symptoms of AML, such as um, fevers and, and other sorts of infections that can make people um, feel unwell. Um, I think those are the, the major things I would say. Everyone's group of symptoms can be a little bit different, and the, the side effects from various treatments can all be a little bit different. Um, so I would encourage you to, to talk to your doctor based on the specific treatment approach that you're getting. Excellent. Um, excellent. Um, and um, so uh, there's another question here about um, uh, for uh, Dr. Ravandi. Um, how do we move past um, the issue of concerns about relapse? Um, my husband is in remission. He just had another biopsy, and we um, worry every time he gets one done. I feel like our lives are overtaken by anxiety, even though we supposedly beat the disease. If you could comment on that, I imagine that's something you see a lot in your practice. I, I didn't completely understand sure. the question. Um, so, um, so the question was, um, how, how, do, um, how does this couple move past the fear of relapse? Um, husband in remission, he just had another biopsy, and of course, every time they have a biopsy, they worry about until they get the results. Um, I feel like our lives are overtaken by this, and even though we supposedly beat the disease. Um, what I tell my patients uh, who are not on a clinical trial, who have been in remission maybe a couple of years, is that I don't do bone marrow exams when the patients are in remission. Uh, as in, uh, again, with the exception of patients who are on clinical trials and need to have the bone marrow because of the trial specification, uh, I think uh, I fully understand the anxiety that, that biopsy brings. And every bone marrow aspiration is a procedure, so it has its uh, discomfort that is associated with it, and a very minor risk, but there's potential risks. You know, I mean, people can get uh, what we call hematomas and uh, etc. So, uh, uh, but uh, you know, when we do these uh, bone marrow exams on clinical trials, 
it's really uh, to uh, increase knowledge and uh, to essentially advise us for future. Uh, this is how we can actually understand uh, things, for example, can start beginning to understand the mechanisms of relapse. Uh, so we are actually always grateful to patients who are agreeable to do uh, these repeated biopsies on clinical trials. But in an absence of clinical trial, and I don't want to sort of uh, step on your physician's uh, toes, I, I wouldn't do bone marrow exams routinely, you know, every six months or a year, or et cetera, uh, because uh, I think what that needs to be done is the monitoring of the blood counts. Because unfortunately, if the patient relapses, you will have uh, abnormalities of the blood counts, and perhaps you also start having some symptoms. Uh, but there is no, in my opinion, except for the setting of trials, and that's with obviously the patient's concern, uh, there is no need to keep repeating the bone marrow. And I uh, usually tell my patients when they're in remission that they should just go and enjoy their life to the best they can, as we all have to do, because none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. Thank you. That's very, uh, very helpful, and it's really um, um, such excellent um, uh, information for this participant and perhaps for every participant on the call. Thank you. Thank you so much. And this will be our this is our last question for Dr. Stein. Um, uh, do I need to get my tumor tissue tested for molecular irregularities to see if I am eligible for any new therapies? Um, if if you are someone who is in need of therapies, uh, you know either because you got newly diagnosed or relapsed leukemia. Um, the standard of care would be to check your tumor tissue, meaning your bone marrow biopsy, for the presence of molecular genetic abnormalities. I suspect that's being done already. If it's not being done, then it should be done. Thank you. And I'm going to just ask each of our speakers just to give a takeaway, what you'd like people to take away from this call for, so for Dr. Avanti to start and then Dr. Stein. What you'd like them to t take away from today's program? Uh, so again, uh, um, AML continues to be a uh, serious disease, and uh, the treatment continues to be uh, intensive and uh, puts. Uh, really, uh, uh, patients and their relatives' life upside down. Yeah. Uh, but all I say is that the treatments are getting significantly better. You know, my, I've had a probably uh, like 25-year career in AML, and uh, I would tell you that uh, um, the treatment of the, the disease and how the patients are tolerating it is. Uh, uh, in many ways, night and day. Uh, I mean, I would not say that uh, things are absolutely perfect for all patients now, but uh, uh, there are still patients who relapse. There are still younger patients who have toxicities from intensive therapy, and older patients uh, who have uh, um, uh, uh, problems during their treatment. Uh, but just to give you an indication, uh, I uh, have 
treated a 97-year-old lady with AML, and she has been in remission for three years. And this is something I would never even dream of uh, 20 years ago when I was treating AML. So that just here gives you an indication how things have improved. A great example. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Fadi. That's wonderful. That's, I think, wonderful for our participants to hear. And Dr. Stein? Yeah, just in the last 20 seconds, I mean, I would just um, close on the hopeful note that Dr. Ravandi um, just, just told us, which is that the treatments for acute myeloid leukemia have dramatically improved really over the past decade. And I see down the road over the next five years, we're going to have even more treatments that are going to be coming to the forefront and are going to lead to um, decreasing the rates of relapse. Um, in patients who are treated for their acute myeloid leukemia. So I think w things are on the upswing, and I, I continue to anticipate um, that things are going to get better. Well, thank you both. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. This has been an amazing program today. Um, we have done this program before, but I have to say today, I think you've gotten the most up-to-date information and really um, and heard about all the latest treatments um, and, and of course, uh, about a 97-year-old woman who's, who's usually for three years doing well. So I think that it's important to hear those things and to take those away with you um, as important examples. Um, again, I want to um, get back to our participants because we do have many more questions in queue, and we're not able to take all of your questions, so I want to comment on that. But I also want to comment on questions in general. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question that you didn't get to ask, and for those of you who have a question that is sort of forming in your mind based on the program today, I want you to take all that information back to your treating healthcare team. Remember, they know you the best. They actually, um, they clearly, um, you know, will be most able to address your question. We hope you'll go back to your treating team with some information that you learned today and that you'll share that with your treating healthcare team. And, and ask them how that applies to you. And really, um, because again, they know all of your information the very best. Um, so you've gotten some very important information today, but again, uh, your, your own healthcare team has to customize it specifically to you and to your specific situation. Um, but also, um, I also want to comment that um, I also don't want anyone to leave today's program feeling like you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of a very large network of support. It may not always feel that way. First of all, you have your healthcare team, which consists of your physician, the oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial specialist, patient navigator, a lot of team members that you may not see all the time. But if you mention a problem to your physician, they will connect you to the person on that team who could help you. Um, and also, um, you also have the Leukemia Research Foundation, you have Cancer Care. Um, there also is um, uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. There's, so we will give you a lot of organizations out there that can potentially help you with your concerns and questions. We want you to go to credible resources. So we'll give you the most credible resources that you can go to to get information. So most importantly, as we conclude today, um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.